Medical rewrites, medical rewrites, medical. Medical Rewrites, the podcast that rewrites movie scenes with evidence-based medicine. I am Megan Jeffries. Our medical rewrite today will be for CODA, which stands for Child of Deaf Adults. The deep dive will be about dermatophyte infections, aka ringworm. This podcast does contain descriptions of sexually transmitted infections. If you find this distressing, this might be an episode to skip, but maybe of more importance, if you haven't seen this movie, which is not a universally acclaimed movie or popular movie, like Wedding Crashers or Bridesmaids. This might be an episode to come back to after you've seen Coda, but I've taken special care to avoid any spoilers. The movie was released in 2021, mid-pandemic, not what you would call a wildly popular time to go to the movie theater. It had a budget of 10 million and it had a box office of 2 million, which does sound terrible, I totally get, but It premiered in 2021 at the Sundance Film Festival and then was acquired by Apple TV. So not a theater movie company. It did so well. It was such a good film that they then decided to release it to 600 theaters after it had been streaming for a year. So the box office $2 million sounds bad and typically a sign of not a phenomenal movie. But this is, um, you guys have to see this. It's so good. IMDb rates it an 8 out of 10, Rotten Tomatoes Critics rates it 94% positive, and then the audience has a 94% positive score too. Those 9% are terrible humans that did not give this a fresh tomato. It's currently streaming on Apple TV. Now, this Apple TV is not sponsoring this, but just in case there is somebody who works at Apple TV, I am available for sponsorship because you have a fantastic movie on your platform. For those of you that don't have Apple TV, there's a seven-day free trial. This is worth signing up for a seven-day free trial. However you cancel this at the end, up to you, obviously. But it's such a good movie. That's the point. For this rewrite to make sense, I need to introduce you to the Rossi family. They're the parents, Jackie and Frank, played by Marley Matlin and Troy Kotzer. They have two children, Ruby and Leo. They are played by Emily Jones and Daniel Durant. Ruby is the only hearing member of her family. So two deaf parents and a deaf brother. Her life subsequently revolves around being her family's interpreter to the hearing world and helping her dad and brother run their commercial fishing operation off the coast of Massachusetts. So every morning she goes out on the ocean with her dad and brother where she helps with the fishing operation and then goes to high school where we discover that she actually has ambitions in the musical world and wants to really further her education and her life as a singer. Being her family's interpreter, however, Ruby is put into strange and awkward situations that children with hearing parents are not often in. For instance, her parents' doctor's appointments, which is the scene that we're going to focus on today for the rewrite. I typically would prefer to put a snippet of the actual movie in the podcast, but because so much of this scene includes American Sign Language from the perspective of Frank who is speaking, Ruby is interpreting as Ruby talks to the doctor. I had two pharmacists extraordinaire serve as script readers today. So Scott Miller and Madison Salam were amazingly generous with their time today and recorded the scene for us. So that's what we're going to insert here. The setting is Ruby is sitting between her parents in this tiny exam room. She's translating for them 
which she has done many times. She looks annoyed at how this is playing out. She's not loving being in the doctor's office to discuss an infection that her father has and her mother has and being the interpreter with the physician. The physician is taking in this information, looks a little shell-shocked. That's the vibe of the scene. It's definitely itchy as hell. It itches. My nuts are on fire. His, you know. They're like angry, hard little beasts covered in barnacles. I get it. And your mother's got it even worse, like foiled lobster claw. You guys have jock itch. I'll, um, I'll give you an antifungal cream, but you both have to keep the area dry and avoid sex for two weeks. You two need clean underwear and you're not allowed to do it anymore. What? For how long? Never again. Done for life. Okay, two weeks. Can't Impossible. do it. Thank you, Scott and Madison. That was incredible. Let's take a deep dive into jock itch. Jock itch has many names, which I think makes this topic overly complex because it has so many nicknames. Colloquially, it's referred to as ringworm. Medically, this type of fungal infection is often referred to as tinea. In Latin, tinea means gnawing worm, G-N-A-W-I-N-G, a chewing worm, which is fascinating to me that this is the origin for this infection. And then after tinea, you just throw on the Latin word for the body part that gets infected. You, so you have things like tinea pedis, which is gnawing worm of the foot, tinea capitis, gnawing worm of the head, tinea curis, which is gnawing worm of the groin, thighs, or butt. The list goes on for other sites, including hair and nail infections. The microbe responsible for it is a dermatophyte. Scientifically, dermatophytes belong to the Arthrodermatraceae family. Dermatophytes are odd little fungi because they can survive entirely on the protein called keratin found in skin, hair, and nails. I was more familiar with keratin as a hair treatment than probably the fact that dermatophytes feed on it. Keratin is only found in vertebrates, so dermatophytes can only exist in a parasitic relationship attached to a vertebrate. So somebody with hair, nails, and skin. Most common genus to cause tinea infections on the skin are the trichophyton. That's the easiest genus to say. And then we have epidermophyton and microsporium. So trichophyton is what we're going to focus on today. So trichophyton rubrum is the main cause of tinea infections and accounts for nearly 70% of cases, especially here in the U.S. Internationally, globally, there are different species that are causing way more dramatic and worse infections. We'll talk about those locations in a hot second. Second place goes to trichophyton mentagophytes complex. So mentagrophytes complex. Tinea infections in the hair are usually caused by Microsporium daunii. I am telling you, the pronunciation of the genus and species of the microbiology that I choose to include in this podcast is some sort of self-hating behavior. Tons of references in the show notes to support all the sort of facts and figures that we just went through. Back to tinea. Tinea can happen anywhere on the body. Trichophyton is more successful as a pathogen when it's warm, which is why so many tinea infections occur in skin folds. There was an experimental model that was pretty fascinating to read through 
where they collected heel skin, which just as a sentence makes my skins crawl. Shout out to the person who collected all of the heel skin to, <laughs> to run this experiment. I would have quit on day one. This I could I could not do this. In the experiment, what they wanted to look at was in what conditions the trichophyton was able to penetrate and infect heel skin. Under experiments where they tested variables for temperature and humidity, they found out that trichophyton was much faster at penetrating into heel skin at 35 degrees Celsius than 27 degrees. So heat being the big predictor there, all of the temperature experiments were conducted at 100% humidity to remove this as a variable, as a confounder. At 0% humidity, we don't know what the results would have been, but there is a heat-dependent success rate of trichophyton anyways. This same study also showed that washing the skin will remove all of the fungal elements, even after 16 hours of exposure. So they left the dermatophyte on the heel skin in hot ass temperatures with 100% humidity and just let it do its thing for at least 16 hours. Then they just washed the heel skin and were able to remove all the fungal elements. The summary of this was that if you wash your body Q 16 hours or maybe Q day, you could potentially prevent any tinea infections on your body. This temperature discovery also may explain the phenomenon of leg spreading on public transportation. Perhaps these people are just trying to decrease groin temperatures and thus preventing rapid trichophyton invasion of the epidermis. You just don't know. We've been making all these assumptions. Now that we know the basics of jock itch, let's examine Frank's chief complaint. Again, Frank says, it's itchy as hell. My nuts are on fire. They're like angry, hard little beets and covered in barnacles. This is actually a description of tinea scrotum, not tinea curis. Learning more about tinea infections, tinea scrotum is lamely called tinea scrotum because there's no Latin word for scrotum. This is one of many disappointments I had while doing this deep dive. It's scrotum in English and in Latin, so there's not a fun Latin name. But I would put forward to the medical community that we could call this tinea coleus, which is the Latin word for sack for holding liquids. It really goes with all of the other tinea location, at least phonetically. So capitus, curus, coleus, pedis, it fits right in. I digress. Back to tinea. Even though it's the most common fungal infection in the world, finding data to break down the prevalence at various body sites is crazy because what I wanted to be able to put in here is 20% of ringworm infections occur on the trunk or the legs or extremities, or 20% of tinea infections involve oncomycosis of nails and et cetera. There's, that just data doesn't exist, or at least it didn't exist where I could find it. The best data that I have in terms of commonality of various sites of tinea infections is this opening paragraph of a study titled Clinical Features and Skin Microbiome of Tinea Scrotum. The authors state that although the scrotum is traditionally regarded as rarely involved area for tinea, case reports have provided definitive evidence of such infections. And this next sentence really cracks me up. It states, male genital fungal infections have received considerable attention recently. That's it. That's the sentence. And I just thought, was there a time in history where male genital fungal infections were ignored and were just now paying their proper due? 
Either way, the sentence cites nine case reports or a case series from the last 20 years. To their credit, there were more recently in the past 10 than in the first 10 years of that 20-year period. This particular case series is rather large. That's 133 patients in total. All patients were male, Chinese, and immunocompetent. 80% complained of itching. 60% had used topical steroids. And the most common clinical presentation were patients showing diffuse, dry, scaly, red lesions without a clear border. All of the infections were caused by trichophyton rubrum. There's a series of pictures available in this particular article. If anyone is really interesting in seeing scrotal tinea. 92% of these patients had superficial fungal infections in addition to the scrotum. The most common sites were groin feet and toenails. The authors hypothesized that the scrotum was a secondary site, not a primary site. This means that Frank's chief complaint of symptoms is accurate for tinea scrotum, not tinea curatus. Therefore, we need a grammar rewrite. Where Frank says they're like angry little hard beats, which we're assuming they is plural for testicles or maybe balls. In this quick fix, we need to just change it to, it's like an angry hard beat covered in barnacles, since only the singular scrotum he's referring to and not the plural testicles, which is on the inside, obviously. Know your audience, Megan. Okay, next. Frank tells the doctor, still, still through his sad daughter, Ruby, who is in verbalizing Frank's signing to her, he says, and your mother's got it even worse, like a boiled lobster claw. If that is not descriptive writing of what you would imagine tinea of the labia to be, this is beautiful. Zero rewrites for this description, of course. In this section, however, there's even less data. We have got a case report of at least 113 patients with tinea scrotum. When we're looking for tinea of the labia, there's almost nothing. The medical world also hasn't decided what to call this. There's tinea genitals, which has been thrown out there too, as well as tinea curis, sort of lumping this into jock itch, et cetera. One study I found, it was an 11-year study in Spain where there are 2,000 female patients who were sex workers were screened for sexually transmitted infections on a voluntary basis. Of those 2,000 female patients screened, there were seven cases of what they called tinea curis. Six of those cases were caused by trichophyton and one by epidermophyton. There were no co-infections of Canada or other yeasts, so a primary dermatophyte infection. There were no other sites of tinea in this group, so it was a primary infection, not a secondary site. So we assume that the groin infection was the primary infection caused by genital-to-genital -genital contact based on the sex work of this patient group. A more recent case series from 2015 describes seven patients of what they describe as tinea genitalis. They presented to a dermatology clinic in Switzerland after having sexual contact with someone in Southeast Asia. Locations are going to be very key in terms of going forward and understanding the data for more recent data for tinea infections, Southeast Asia being a hotspot. All patients grew trichophyton interdigitale. All patients received systemic antifungals. Again, there are pictures in this series. And this is not what you would describe as classical ringworm that does not look serious. These infections look serious. There's ulcerations. There's way more skin damage than you think of when you picture ringworm in your head. 
Two patients out of the seven were hospitalized just for pain management. So again, atypical of a typical ringworm infection. If you look at the pictures, you will quickly understand the need for hospitalization. The skin alteration is severe. The same patient that you will see, if you want to look at reference photos of this, had significant scarring after treatment, which makes total sense considering how much skin ulceration there is that this patient had after starting therapy. Of note, almost all people, by the time they get to the point where somebody is doing a research project on them, have been prescribed or have used over-the-counter topical steroids, which may or may not be a risk factor for extensive skin ulceration that happens. And then our last one, hot off the press, there's a case series of sexually transmitted trichophyton metanogrophytes published in the July issue of Emerging Infectious Diseases this year. This is a case series from France. There was a small outbreak of 13 infections that occurred in 2021 and 2022. All patients were male. Five patients had a single skin lesion. Two had infections on their beard. The rest had multiple sites of infection. Of the 13 patients, 11 reported having sexual activity exclusively with men and one reported having sexual relationships with men and women. The thought here was that all of these fungal infections were in fact sexually transmitted. Nine of them required systemic antifungal therapy. 10 of the 13 patients fully recovered. One was still in therapy at the time of publication and two patients were lost to follow up. Again, there are pictures. The skin ulceration is significant. Okay, back to Frank, Jackie, and Ruby all at the doctor's office where their first line from the physician is, I'll give you an antifungal cream. <sighs> Deep sigh. I'm just going to start this treatment section here by saying, I'm sorry for what I'm about to have to tell you, and maybe a potential call of action. Even though tinea is reported to be the most common fungal infection in the world, there are no current guidelines in the U.S. for treatment of tinea. The most recent are from the American Academy of Dermatology, 1996, published in 1996. The American Academy of Pediatrics Red Book Infectious Disease book has a chapter for each tinea site. That was published in 2021, but it's not super helpful for Frank or Jackie as they are not peds. The British Association of Dermatologists wrote guidelines for the management of oncomycosis, which is tinea of the fingers or toenails. They were done in 2015. They give the highest level of evidence for systemic therapy over topical therapy. Specifically, they call it itraconazole and terbenafine. Fluconazole is reserved for patients that can't tolerate either itra or terbenafine. And then last place is given to griseofluvin, which they state has a lower cure rate and higher relapse rate than terbenafine or itraconazole. Topical therapy has the lowest level of evidence. Annoyed with the lack of recent guidelines, I turned to UpToDate to try to rescue me. They recommend, authors of the UpToDate chapter on tinea infections recommend topical therapy for localized infections, which they defined as limited to a single body area, or oral therapy if it's widespread. That's the distinction between topical and oral therapy. There is no evidence to support that statement. It is just standard of practice for the authors that wrote that section. There is not a distinction in their flow chart or in their text about severity of infection. For instance, if your patient says their scrotum is on fire or that their wife's labia looks like a boiled lobster claw, 
that feels like the severity of illness should be taken into account when we're picking treatment options here and mirrors some of the case reports that we've discovered in terms of severity of infection versus what we think of as traditional ringworm. There was a Cochrane review from 2014 that assessed the efficacy of topical antifungal therapy for tinea curious and tinea corporis. Tinea corporis is just anywhere on the body, so corpse being the Latin origin there. They included 129 studies with over 18,000 patients. The authors concluded that most of the data is old and therefore unreliable. I can co-sign this sentiment and sigh of disappointment. It feels very similarly depressing when you're looking at the state of primary literature in this area in terms of topical antifungal therapy, or God forbid we have a comparative study of topical versus systemic therapy. Nonetheless, these authors persevere and they conclude that terbenafine, naftaphine, and clotrimazole are better than placebo. So we've got that. Some topical antifungals are better than placebo. They also identified that azoles in combination with steroids, so azole and steroid combination creams, were better than azoles alone. I find this to be very skeptical. I'm very skeptical about this. I think it's an odd finding in terms of cure rates. I get that itching and redness would improve with the use of a topical steroid, but it cannot improve cure rates. And topical steroids are so bad for your skin. I'm very skeptical about this. The data is old. I'm just not an advocate here. Of note, there are several review articles also against the use of topical steroids. Those are actually written by experts, unlike me, in this particular area. There is a good, I'm qualifying it as a good review article. It's out of Australia from 2019. They suggest oral terbenafine as first-line therapy, followed by fluconazole and intraconazole as second-line agents. Of note, in the summary table, comparing terbenafine and fluconazole, they have surprisingly high recurrence rates for both treatment options. It's a 33% recurrence rate for terbenafine and 37% for fluconazole, which is really high. And of course, makes more sense of why all of these antifungals were compared to placebo if that's the recurrence rate that you're dealing with. I'm still not taking back the fact that there clearly needs to be a comparative study. Now that we've discussed how terrible the guidelines are, there are review articles out there that may suffice as some expert recommendations, but again, no good systematic guideline has been done in ages. When it comes to the recent primary data, there is actually loads of randomized controlled trials, but the vast majority of the data is coming out of India, which is experiencing a dramatic increase in multidrug resistant species of trichophyton, including metanogrophytes. Metanogrophytes is the same species associated with the K-series in France of sexually transmitted tinea infections, so could be a key player for Frank and Jackie. In a pragmatic randomized trial that included patients with chronic relapsing tinea corporis, tinea curious, and tinea fasciae, there were 200 patients that were randomized into four groups of 50 patients per group. Each group received either fluconazole, griseofluvin, itraconazole, or terbenafine, all oral systemic therapy. After four weeks of therapy, the cure rate was 8% for all groups. Not failure, the cure rate, 8% four weeks. After eight weeks of therapy, cure rates got better. First place goes to itraconazole, 66% cure rate. Fluconazole is at 42% cure. 
Terbenafine is a dismal third place with 28% cure rate. Griseofluvin, half that, 14% successful cure rate after eight weeks of therapy. And that just has to be random chance, right? Cure it after eight weeks. Based on that data, looking at itraconazole specifically, as it maybe was the victor in that particular pragmatic trial, I looked more at itraconazole data. One of the better, more recently done studies was a dose escalation randomized controlled trial that compared itraconazole 100, 200, and 400 milligrams per day. It was published in JAMA Dermatology in 2022. All patients were treatment naive where less than 5% of their body first surface area was affected by tinea corpus or tinea curis. So again, also data out of India. Most common pathogens were trichophyton metagrophytes. I'm laughing because at ID week, which is why this podcast is late, I got so much crap for how differently I pronounced tetrahydrozoline in the wedding crashers episode each time. So this mentagrophytes is going to suffer from the same terrible pronunciation issues. Of this, microbiology of the trichophyton species, two of them, trichophyton interdigitale and trichophyton mentagrophytes. Terbenafine and fluconazole MIC-90s from the study were eight, so high. Itraconazole MIC-90s were 0.5, so multiple dilutions lower. So itraconazole being the better treatment there, which is good because that's what everyone got. But that's the microbiology that we're dealing with here. 126 of 149 patients completed the trial. Cure rates for the 100 milligram group was 82%, 93% for the 200 milligram group, and 100% in the 400 milligram group. So certainly a signal or a trend for higher cure rates with higher doses of itraconazole. In the study, because there's only 50 people in each group, there were no statistical differences, but looking clinically relevant. The duration until cure was seven weeks for the 100 and 200 milligram group and five weeks for the 400 milligram group. So way higher cure rates than the prior pragmatic study, but probably not comparing apples and oranges because the prior study were relapsing and failed therapy patients. In this study, it was treatment naive. The relapse rate in the 100 milligram group was 60%, which dropped to 40% in the 200 milligram group in the 400 milligram group. So relapse rates, again, super high. Whether this is reinfection or relapse, I suspect is hard to tease out if you don't get your source, your environmental source of where you're coming into contact with the stromatophytes. The most common dose-related side effects, so between the 100, 200, and 400 milligram dupes, was just titled acidity. So the frequency of acidity in the 400 milligram group was 15%. I don't know what acidity means. I don't know if it's referring to heartburn. There's no description in it in the supplements. So acidity is higher as the dose goes higher. Other adverse effects with the highest in the 400 milligram group was abdominal pain and constipation, which occurred in 10% of that patient population. So maybe all GI related. So again, dose related, much higher in the 400 milligram group than in the 100 or 200. All of this data, however, is nearly irrelevant for a married couple in Massachusetts with tinea scrotum and tinea genitalis. What we need is a comparative study between topical agent and an oral agent, or any combination of an oral agent, azole, or terbenafine compared to a topical azole or topical terbenafine. Key outcomes would be cure rate, obviously, but also duration of infection or duration of contagiousness would be very helpful here, considering 
that if we're going to decide on a route of therapy is best for a couple who finds it impossible to avoid sexual contact for two weeks, that that's a deal breaker for them. They're going to be each other's source infection unless we can get an idea of how long they are contagious or how long it's going to take for this ringworm to clear up. In the absence of clear data about the efficacy of topical versus oral antifungal therapy, maybe the rewrite here could include some shared decision-making with Frank and Jackie. The doctor's office scene in the movie is absolute perfection. I'd happily extend it. But for the sake of clarity, we went with a recommendation here. And again, we've got the doctor and Ruby being the speaking members of this particular rewrite. Again, Madison Salam and Scott Miller, thank you so much for lending your acting chops today. It was a hilarious task to record it with you. Topical therapy has the advantage of being available over the counter with minimal side effects since there's very little absorption to the rest of your body. The disadvantage is that there's very little data, perhaps none, about topical antifungal for tinea scrotum, and efficacy cannot be predicted. Um, whatever gets rid of the fire in the shortest fastest. Have you or Jackie been to India or Southeast Asia recently? He wants to know if this is a fishing recommendation. What? I don't know. Let's start you both on terbenafine 250 milligrams once daily. This will avoid exposing you to a group of antifungal agents called azoles that we would normally use if you had full-blown fungal infection. Oral therapy feels like the better choice here since Frank and Jackie are at risk of reinfecting each other through naked aerobics and panicked when they were told they had to abstain from sexual contact for two weeks. And this is based on using some surrogate outcomes out of the studies of India, which have shown shorter durations of cure when compared to oral therapy. Again, comparing oral to oral and then comparing topical to topical or just descriptions of how long therapy is taken. Again, no comparative studies exist. I'll fully admit that this recommendation is based on rickety evidence, not the goal of this podcast, because we're extracting data from highly resistant trichophyton infections in an endemic area of the country and giving them credence to a fisherman in Massachusetts, which is not optimal. The doctor's final recommendation to Frank and Jackie are you both have to keep the area dry and avoid sex for two weeks. So two rewrites here are needed. One, we know that humidity is probably less relevant here, irrelevant to the success of trichophyton infections than temperature is. So instead of keep area dry, maybe the doctor could say keep the area cool. That sounds nice. And number two, avoiding sex for two weeks may not be long enough duration and person-to-person contact Tinea should be avoided as well as any shared towels, blankets, clothes, etc. No data that I have found, no primary data that indicates how long a patient is contagious. I have read in review articles that say you're contagious until the lesion is completely resolved or that you're contagious until the lesion has started to shrink in size. The indication there being if you're shrinking in size, the fungal elements are dead. I have zero primary evidence to back any of that up. Instead, what the doctor could say is avoid touching each other's lobster claws and beets for at least two weeks. The fungus needs to be dead and the lesion needs to start to get smaller before any touching occurs. Oh, this rewrite was such a heavy lift based on the amount of literature that was not applicable (laughs) to 
Frank and Jackie. But we have come to the end. That's all the rewrites I have for Coda. Check out the show notes for references and pictures. If you know a movie that deserves a medical rewrite, visit the website and complete the form or click the link in the show notes. This podcast has been a presentation by me, Megan Jeffries, production editing by Ann Conley. She's the wind beneath my wings. And music by Brandon Meager. If you're still listening, one, I appreciate you. And two, let's tell a friend. Or let's tell an enemy. I'm fully not picky about who you tell, but let's tell them about this podcast. Maybe strike up a conversation about jock itch and how it usually spares the scrotum. You won't be enemies for long with that opener.